When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Anything Ghost, number 295. Welcome to Anything Ghost. My name is Lex Wall. Anything Ghost is the place to be when you want to hear true ghost stories sent in by the listeners. We also allow local ghost legends, so if you have a true ghost story you want to share, something you experienced or someone you know, or a local ghost legend, send it to lex at anythingghost.com. Okay, if you're ready for some ghost stories from the past, from the present, and from past Anything Ghost episode, stick around for show number 295. Okay, we're going to start things off from Grace in the U.S. Unsettling night in a DACA hotel. Around 1997, my family moved from Turkey to Bangladesh. My dad worked at an international agency, and we moved around a couple of different countries growing up as a kid. We moved from Turkey to Bangladesh when I was pretty young, around seven years old. When we first moved to Dhaka, we had to stay in a hotel for a while because the house we were supposed to move into wasn't ready. We stayed at the Pan Pacific Sonoran Hotel until we could move into our house. We, being myself, my little brother, my grandmother, and my parents. My brother and I shared a hotel room with my grandmother while my parents stayed in a separate room during our stay there. My mother later told me that one night while my dad was traveling for his job, she experienced something creepy and startling. It was nighttime and she was lying in bed, reading a book. It was just her as my dad was out of town, so she stayed up for a while to read. She was finally ready for bed and put her book down. She leaned over to turn off the lamp and then closed her eyes. She felt a sudden movement on top of her. Next thing she knew, the bed covers and the sheets had been pulled off of her and the bed completely. This startled her and scared her because she now realized that there was someone in the hotel room with her. Her heart started racing as she went through different thoughts. Maybe it was someone who worked at the hotel or another hotel guest. Perhaps it was one of us that somehow got into her room. When she first told me this story, she shared with me that she thought she was about to be assaulted or killed. She immediately reached over to turn on the lamp on the bedside table, and as soon as the room lit up, her heart stopped and froze. No one was there. Nothing else happened after that, but my mom was completely freaked out, as you can imagine. She didn't mention if she changed rooms or how close this was to us moving into our home. But knowing her, I wouldn't be surprised if she asked to be put in a different hotel room the very next day. The Yellow Millbridge Ghost, Bridgeport, Connecticut, 1891. This story took place in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1891. The story was told to the news by Andrew B. Morris, who lived in Bridgeport and worked as a machinist for the W&W Manufacturing Company. The Yellow Mill Bridge in Bridgeport, Connecticut was, in 1891, 
a much less assuming bridge than it is today. And it was around that time that locals were saying and newspapers were writing that the Yellow Mill Bridge was haunted by a ghost. On a Thursday night, February 6th, 1891, a local machinist, Andrew Morris, was walking home in the evening after a visit with his girlfriend. The walk back to his home would entail passing by the Yellow Mill Bridge. Andrew was in a good state of mind after having had a nice visit with his girlfriend. But as he approached the Yellow Mill Bridge, he suddenly saw the figure of a woman on the opposite side of the street. She appeared to be walking in a great hurry. Thinking the woman feared Andrew was following her, Andrew Morris decided to slow his pace. But he was surprised to see that the lady also slowed her pace. At that point, Andrew decided to stop walking. The woman also stopped. He began to think this lady had some kind of mental problem and decided to turn and head back the way he came. The woman did the same. He turned toward her at that point and yelled, Who are you? And why don't you go home? There was no answer. Andrew warned the strange lady, If you don't go away, I'll fire a rock at you. He reached down for a stone and threw it at the figure. But the stone went right through the woman and struck an iron pole behind her. It was noted that for those who wanted to verify the story, they could visit the spot and see a dent in the pole from the rock. Andrew was then convinced that he was in the presence of a ghost. So he pulled his hat down on his head and made a sprint for the bridge. But the ghostly figure crossed the bridge right ahead of him. And when he was about the center of the span of the bridge, she suddenly turned with a rush and came toward him. Andrew froze for a moment. The figure disappeared. Andrew Morris yelled and ran home where he arrived in a state of exhaustion. Local residents of the bridge claim they don't believe it is haunted. However, after Andrew Morris's story was told, travel across the Yellow Mill Bridge in the evening greatly decreased and a police officer who would regularly patrol that part of town in the evening that includes the bridge was always somehow fully occupied at the other end of his beat. The next story comes to us from Jesse in Ottawa, Canada. Ghost Girl on a Bicycle About a month ago I was scheduled to have an MRI the appointment was at 10.30 p.m. at a hospital, which was about 20 minutes away from my home. It's a familiar drive for me, and one I do often. The drive is along the river, and it's well lit along the roads, but down along the river, it can definitely be dark. It's a beautiful area. I had the procedure, which took about a half an hour, and then I had to dress and wait an hour to ensure that I did not have a significant allergic reaction to the contrast dye. So it was close to midnight before I started driving home. There wasn't much traffic, but there were a few other cars. Ottawa doesn't quite shut down at night, but most places close at or before 9 p.m., and by midnight most everything has been closed for hours. There is a park just at one of the turns to get home, with some hike and bike trails and picnic tables. As I turned the corner and was yielding to another car, I looked to my right and saw a young woman in a pretty white, eyelit dress riding an older-style white bike with a basket in front. The bike itself was just a regular bike, not a mountain bike or a 10-speed, but the cruiser-style bikes with fenders that you can still find today, but were mostly popular in the 1940s to the 1960s. The woman had a chin-length brown bob hairstyle and was pedaling uphill slowly but effortlessly. I remember briefly admiring her skirt and thinking I'd have to stand on the pedals to get up that hill, and so that dress would have been a real pain for me. And who wears dresses to go for a bike ride anyway? 
out of the corner of my eye, I saw a car pass to my left and was focused back on the road to confirm that indeed the car passed and there were no additional cars. Within a couple of seconds, I looked over again to double check that the woman wasn't planning on crossing the street, but she was gone. There was no sign of her. There was no sign of anyone at the park. It was only then that I remembered that it was really late at night. I can't say that it's impossible for a young woman to be riding her bike alone after midnight on a dark path along the river. I know I certainly wouldn't. And the thing that gets me is that she looked just normal enough to me to doubt myself and just odd and out of place enough to wonder if she was real. Plus, she just disappeared. The Ghosts of Black Pond, Shreveport, Louisiana, 1890. The Black Pond was a small body of water with an odd inky color, which laid about five miles north of Shreveport, Louisiana. The pond had long held a reputation of being haunted, to such an extent that locals would refuse to pass by the pond after sunset, and some wouldn't even venture during the day, and only then when in the company of others. Avoidance of the pond became such that the road that ran along Black Pond for a mile and a half was abandoned for a different nearby road that didn't have a view of the pond. The stories that were told about the strange things seen on the shores of Black Pond sounded more like old legends than paranormal events. Plus, those stories were being told by an uneducated population in that area, so many who lived further out from the pond didn't take the stories too seriously. But there began recent occurrences at Black Pond that refocused the public's attention on the haunted waterhole. Many began to wonder if there had been some terrible tragedy that occurred at Black Pond. William Lane, a farmer who lived about a mile or two beyond Black Pond, reported that one night while he was returning home late in the evening, his horse chose to follow the old deserted road that ran along the side of the pond. He hadn't noticed this change in course his horse had taken, and soon found himself on the shore of Black Pond late at night. And just as he realized his horse had taken him to this place, in the moonlight he saw the ghost of a woman leading a child along. Both of them were crying. The ghost had simply risen up from the dirt right before his horse. But before he could react and steer his horse, the animal walked right through the two figures as if they weren't even there. By the time he got home, in a state of fright and horror, it was very late, and he had to wait hours before he could tell anyone what he had experienced. Lane was known to be a heavy drinker, so those who heard his story about the woman and the child ghosts wrote it off as a hallucination. However, the story was soon to be confirmed by a Dr. Stonebreak. The doctor had been called out to see a very sick patient. It was late, so he chose the old road because it would make better time. The doctor didn't believe in ghosts, so his journey down the old road had no effect on him. That was until his horse began to react to something. When Dr. Strongbreak looked up to see what his horse was reacting to, he saw a tall figure clad in sweeping garments with long floating hair about her shoulders. She was standing in the middle of the road. The ghost was moving quickly in a gliding motion and crying in a woman's voice. It was repeating some words but they were too low for him to understand what they were. The ghost's back was to the doctor, and he quickened his pace to overtake her. It was then that the ghost paused and looked back over her shoulder. The horse stopped without the doctor's order and refused to move toward the ghost, rearing and plunging when the doctor ordered it to go forward. The ghost stood looking at the doctor for several moments before it disappeared into what he believed was the pond water, though he saw no splash or ripple in the pond. Okay, so as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of The Ghosts of Black Pond from August 1890 in Shreveport, Louisiana. And by the way, I did locate 
Black Pond, it's a fairly large place and appears to be used during the day or today as a mill or factory. It's closed off to the public. It appears to be fairly large, more like a small lake, but I'm thinking maybe it's grown over the years or the factory or mill uses water in their industry, which enlarged the body of water. But anyways, why I'm saying is that's where I think the story ends because it gets kind of ridiculous after this. Um, I'll read it to you, but I believe the true part of the story was what we just heard. You know, the doctor went and visited and saw the ghost. And then when he came home from seeing the patient, I think he kind of elaborated, oh, no, this is what happens. He goes back with three guys to try to catch, he thought it was a prank, so he went back to try to catch whoever's pranking the ghost thing. And I don't think they came up with anything, so they came back with this big elaborate story, which was kind of silly. But I'll read it, paraphrase it for you. Uh, The doctor still didn't believe he witnessed a ghost and figured someone had been playing a prank on him. So the following night, in company of Mr. Russell Hunchford and Colonel R. Woodburn, who was 31, he went to visit the site at the same hour. All three of them carried shotguns and revolvers. They concealed themselves in some undergrowth close to where the doctor first saw the ghost. The trio waited at that spot until nearly 11 o'clock at night. The moon began to reflect on the pond back at them, And then they saw the image of a boat containing a child dressed in white. His hands were bound. His face was turned up to the sky. And he had a sunken look of a dead person. The three heard strange crying noises coming from the boat, which had a huge hole in the side. They said the noises were coming from every direction, over their heads and beneath their feet. The doctor described it as a horrible, unearthly sound, which he could no way describe. The boat was so near to them, yet the sound was so faint as if coming from a distance. Then, the figure of a woman from the night before appeared to spring from the ground. She passed so near to them that they could almost reach out and touch her garments as she passed, but the terror they were experiencing prevented them from doing anything. As the three of them sat there, the woman was peering out over the water, As she was turning, she paused where they were hiding, and they were able to see her face in the bright moonlight. She had no eyes, and her face appeared to be someone who had been long dead. After this, she slowly dissipated, but that was followed by many voices crying, lamenting, and shrieking, as if by hundreds of voices. Then a black man appeared. He looked as if his neck was injured, as if he had been hung to death by a rope. The three got scared at that point, and one of them stood and fired a pistol at the ghost, but the bullet made no impact. Soon after he fired, all three specters were gone, and the cries of different voices became louder and then faded. Then also they noticed a horrible smell coming from the pond. They guessed it was the smell of death. In short, people in around Black Pond began to believe that the body of water contained the bodies of several dead or murdered people. So that's the story of the ghosts of Black Pond in Shreveport, Louisiana, 1890. Anything Ghost has been around since January of 2006. That's a lot of stories that have been shared since then. And right now, 20 free episodes are available to you wherever you listen to your podcasts. But if you want to hear every single story, every single episode of Anything Goes dating back to that very first episode, and then some, then you need to take a look at joining the Anything Goes VIP group. There's a one-time membership fee, and you can find out more information by going to anythingghost.com, join VIP. Anythingghost.com, join VIP. And you'll hear more stories like this upcoming gem from episode number 207. It's from Tanya... And it's from episode 207 in June 11th of 2015. That part of the house. We're going to get the ball rolling with the story from Tanya in the U.S. That part of the house. I've always been sensitive to energy, whether it be from the living or the dead. When my family moved into a new house in the early 1990s, 
I immediately knew there was something strange about it. Normal things would happen, like creakings, and seeing things out of the corner of my eye. But I never really liked the room I had been given. The room had belonged to the previous owner's adult son, who had painted or stenciled a huge black and white safari scene on the ceiling. The room was small, had double doors, and a large support beam running through it. I was always somewhat afraid to be in there by myself. So, until I was about 11 years old, I slept in my sister's room. If I had to go into that room, I'd make it quick. I would get into trouble because instead of putting things away, I would open the door and toss something in the closet and close it again. If I was grounded, I would sit at the door and not really go far into the room. After a while, I began sleeping in that room on my own. One night, I was making my bed, rearranging my stuffed animals. From out of nowhere, I heard a large, deep growl. I had no stuffed animals that made that kind of noise, so I just threw everything down and ran out and slept on the couch downstairs for a few nights. Sometime after that, I think it was when I was in the eighth grade, I had started sleeping in there every night. Most nights were uneventful, but sometimes I would hear scratching at the bed, carpet, and sometimes from the closet. At that time, my family had a gigantic American Akita, Yoshi. I would always invite Yoshi to sleep with me on nights like those. One night in particular was strange. I remember I was waking up and not able to move. I saw someone in my doorway and just assumed it was my sister. But there was something strange about that person. She appeared to be all white. I couldn't tell if they had clothes on because the body was mostly misty. And in the spot where there should have been eyes, there were just two black holes. It walked closer to me and I was still unable to move. I tried screaming, but nothing came out. The last thing I recall was that it walked right up to me, and then I fell back to sleep. I told everyone about it the next day, completely unafraid of sounding crazy. Everyone told me I was just dreaming. About a year later, my friend Felicia spent the night at my house. There was supposed to be a meteor shower that night, so we had set the alarm for 4 a.m. to get up and watch it. She woke me up at 2 a.m., and although she was not afraid, she just kept repeating, You were right. You were right. I asked her what had happened, and she said she woke up, and there was someone sitting in the middle of the floor. She assumed it was me, and asked me what the heck I was doing, but it wouldn't say anything to her. She then reached around and noticed... I was still in the bed next to her, and she turned back to look at the floor, and it had disappeared. I never saw her again after that. In another part of our house, there was a room, it was like a loft, that sat above the garage. It was connected to the rest of the house through a catwalk. It was always my favorite place to hang out because there was a TV, a DVD player, and computers up there. I would stay up almost until sunrise during the spring break and summers. And since I didn't like my room, I usually ended up sleeping on the couch. I kept this habit up until I graduated from high school and I was about to leave for college. One day, my sister decided to watch a movie up there while I was away. She said she had fallen asleep during the movie, but awoke to her blanket being pulled off she pulled back at it, but whatever was pulling it was stronger and pulled it completely off of her. She was pretty freaked out and never liked being in there again. Funny enough, though, she and her fiancé are now living in that part of my parents' house as they save up money to move to another state. No further happenings have ever been reported from that part of the house. The house is pretty silent now. My father remodeled the whole thing, 
and I'm thinking that the spirits now understand that this is our house and it no longer belongs to them. But I still wonder if they'll greet me again next time I'm there. Eighteen seventies, Massachusetts schoolhouse haunting. In the eighteen seventies, Newbury, Massachusetts, was a conservative, eccentric, and pretty little city on the east side of Massachusetts. The city sits on the edge of the Merrimack River, just before it reaches the Atlantic Ocean. On Charles Street in Newburyport, there was a small one-bedroom schoolhouse. The schoolhouse was said to be a weather-worn building with green blinds and a broken-down fence surrounding the yard. The front door faced Charles Street, and it was surrounded by nice, well-cared-for homes. Down the street a bit was the James Cotton Mill, which had spindles motoring all day and filled the neighborhood with the eternal, monotone sound that would penetrate the schoolhouse walls. The teacher for the school was a born and raised Newburyport resident named Lucy Adelaide Perkins. She was in her early 20s at the time, and each weekday she would enter the schoolhouse and be met by the scent of southern pine that sat quietly in the stuffy schoolroom. The school was mostly an all-boys school with seats for about 60 students. The students were sons of mill workers, fishermen, and tradesmen, and their ages ranged from one who could barely see over the top of his desk to a tall 14-year-old. The schoolhouse was described as one of the most dispiriting and unhappy buildings that children were ever taught in. Old-fashioned, uncomfortable furniture, walls were old, dusty and cracked, windows grimy, and the floors chipped and covered in dust. But with all its issues, the schoolroom had no place where someone could hide, no mirrors that would reflect light, and no niches that would echo sounds. This is being said because of a theory that would later come that a ten-year-old named Amos Currier 
had been the one who pranked the teacher and the students into thinking the schoolhouse was haunted. The paranormal events began as far back as 1870. Some students began to complain of strange noises and other unexplained events in the schoolhouse. But nobody took these complaints seriously, and the school committee wished to keep the events secret. It was discovered that about that time, two previous teachers, before Miss Perkins, had complained of paranormal events in the schoolhouse, but they were forced to live with it. It had been so bad that because of it, several teachers came and went over the years. Some of the events were ordinary knocking, but there were also loud pounding sounds. These knockings and poundings could not be explained, so teachers and students were forced to live with it. Some mornings the children would be quietly saying their morning prayers with the teacher. The room would be silent. Then suddenly, a loud bang would sound from the floors. This would send some of the children jumping from their seats. And they would all await another blow. Another would sound. From the wall, from the floor, and from the teacher's desk. A window and the ceiling. The bangs were sometimes sharp and quick, and other times they were dull, slow, and ominous. These bangs didn't occur at certain moments. They were random times throughout the day. In fact, at one point, the noise was so loud and constant that the teacher was unable to hear the students as they were standing and reciting. And during these times of intense noises, Miss Perkins would attempt to calm the students by telling them it was only the rats or frost on the windows, or the wind. The schoolroom had a partition that separated the schoolroom and the entryway. The partition had doors and a window. The students and teacher would have to open the partition door to enter the entryway area. And the front door was there, along with doors to the cellar below and the attic above. One afternoon there was a loud knock on the door, the knocking sounded natural, as if someone was at the door, so Miss Perkins left the schoolroom area, entered the entryway, unlatched the front door, and opened it. No one was there. She closed the door and went back to her desk. As soon as she did, the knocking happened again. Again, she opened the door. No one was there. This time, she left the door unlocked, then stood and waited nearby. The knock happened again, and she opened it immediately. Again, there was nobody there. So she stepped outside and saw a boy at a water pump about 40 yards away. She demanded to him, Why are you knocking at the door? The boy said he hadn't been knocking at the door, but added that he had heard the knocks three times, and he had paused to look over. Another strange event that would happen in the old schoolhouse was that very often the children were not able to leave their coats on hooks at the entrance because their garments would be thrown to the floor as if by unseen hands. If the coats and hats were rehung, they would be thrown to the ground again. There was also a similar situation with dustpans and brushes that were hung by the door. Those would be thrown to the ground as well. In fact, a visitor attempted to disprove the claim and hung the dustpans and brushes on the hooks, only to watch as they were thrust to the floor. He attempted it again with the same result. The teacher's desk had a bell on it. There was one early morning when the students were waiting to go inside and were playing soldier out front with sticks. Suddenly they heard the tinkering of the teacher's bell ringing from inside the schoolroom. They ran to the door, but it was locked. They then looked down the street and saw Miss Perkins was approaching down the road. When she arrived, they all went inside, and nothing had been disturbed. The schoolhouse also had a constant problem of doors being opened and closed on their own. Sometimes, if a door was open, nobody was able to close it again, as if an unseen force was holding it in place. Another strange occurrence in the schoolhouse was a light. This light would sometimes fill the room, or 
On other occasions, it would just show up in corners of the schoolhouse. The schoolhouse would also experience a strange swirling wind inside the building. It couldn't be explained by the quiet weather outside. The winds would get so bad, swirling around the heads of children, that they were unable to study. But all of this was nothing compared to what was yet to happen to Miss Perkins and some of the students. The schoolhouse interior was set up so the students' desks were facing the teacher, and behind the teacher was the front entrance, and as I said, separating that entrance and the teacher was a partition with one window and two doors. At the date of the following, nearly every seat in the schoolhouse was occupied, about 55 students. One afternoon, about three o'clock, a 13-year-old boy named Lidston was looking at the teacher when something caught his eye from the partition window. It was a child's hand pressed up against the glass. The hand was yellowish-white, and the fingers were spread apart wide. The wrist was behind the hand, which made it appear as if the unseen person was leaning forward into the hand. But before Lidston could react, two or three of his fellow students cried out, as they had seen the hand too. In no less than three seconds, Miss Perkins looked over at the window, but the hand was gone. She checked the front entry and found nobody there, and the front entry door was indeed locked. The hand reappeared on several occasions. The children were accustomed to seeing it, but were in no way relaxed when they'd see it. They would cry out, There's the hand! There's the hand! It was no longer strange noises or things falling that were confronting them. They were now seeing some sort of entity. The children were convinced. It wasn't the wind, the frost, or the house settling. There was a ghost in their schoolhouse. One week before the 1st of November, one of the children raised his hand and cried out, There's a boy in the window! Many of the children had seen the child. He was a young, pale child. His face was pressed sideways against the glass, and his eyes were turned inward toward the schoolroom. His right hand was held up to his temple as if he was blocking light from his eyes. Miss Perkins rushed out of the partition door, but again found an empty entryway, and the door locked. She then proceeded to turn the schoolhouse upside down to search for someone in the building, but found nobody nor any sign of entry. By that time, the children were sharing their own versions of the ghost boy with their families and friends, so the community was now taking notice. Some parents suggested the schoolhouse be shut down. From that day forth, the hand, face, and sometimes an arm, all with the appearance of a deadly look, would appear at that partition window, along with the bangs, winds, and lights, they all continued, and actually seemed to be increasing. Some of the younger students were removed from the school by their parents, but the older ones remained. November 1st, 1872 the ghost. The weather that fall day was cloudy and cold. On that day, Miss Perkins had several of the students standing near the partition window to recite some geography. While they were standing there, a child who was near the opened partition door cried out, There's a boy out there! With that, Miss Perkins rushed through the door and out into the entryway, there she saw a boy. She said a few things to him, but he didn't reply. He simply moved back toward the door that led up to the attic and stood there quietly. Miss Perkins approached the ghost and came within four feet. She guessed he was about 13 years old. He was very pale and had a sad mouth. She said he had an appearance of someone prepared for burial. While standing there, 
The teacher realized she was able to see through the boy to the sash on the other side of him. She began to feel horror and like she was about to faint, so she grabbed the wall to steady herself. At that moment, the door to the attic opened and the ghost boy walked up the stairs. She reluctantly began to follow him, and upon climbing the stairs and entering the attic, she found the boy ghost facing her. She approached him with outstretched arms and reached right through the ghost. At that moment, he slowly faded away. The ghost appeared again the following Friday. It was in the same place and climbed up the same stairs to the attic again. But this time, the ghost faded away as he climbed the stairs. After that appearance, new sounds were being heard by students from the attic. Three different voices were heard, and steps coming from the attic were all being heard by the same students. A few Fridays later, Miss Perkins and a student went into the attic to investigate the noises. They were once again greeted with the ghost of the boy. He eventually faded away. But after that appearance, activity picked up in the schoolhouse. The teacher had tacked down some newspaper on the partition window so the children wouldn't see the ghostly hand anymore, but it was continually rolled down from the window. Footsteps would be heard exiting the attic door, walking across the entry room, leaving through the front door, and then ten minutes or so returning later. They would hear the sound of someone hammering nails in the attic area, as well as what sounded like a cannonball rolling around in the attic. Community and school officials began questioning Miss Perkins about what she was claiming. She would tell of her experiences time and time again, but the school would remain open. The ghostly tales were getting so much notoriety that even renowned Massachusetts jurist and legal scholar Oliver Wendell Holmes came to try to debunk the story. He attempted to bribe the ghost, whom he believed to be 10-year-old Amos Currier, with cash, but he left, unable to provide any explanation. At a meeting of the school committee that was held on Monday evening, February 24, 1873, it was recommended that a vacation of three or four weeks be allowed for Miss Perkins and a substitute employed to take her place. Miss Perkins had suffered from so much anxiety, but not so much from the haunting but from the doubts of those who persistently questioned her truthfulness. It was a huge task to hold the school together and to carry it on amid the mysterious events. Few people could have displayed so much physical courage as she did. She was eventually replaced by a male teacher, and even though the residents demanded she be placed back as the teacher, she wasn't. And I have a letter that Lucy Perkins wrote to a Boston newspaper about the ghost just before she was put on leave. And in it, I think you can tell she's certainly positive she encountered a ghost at the old schoolhouse. And this is what she wrote. Let me zoom in a bit. The Springfield Republican prints the following extract from a letter written by Miss Lucy A. Perkins, teacher at the haunted schoolhouse in Newburyport, Massachusetts, in inquiries concerning an account of the affair published in a newspaper. The account you send me is true, with a few exceptions. When I first saw the boy, he was neatly attired in a brown suit of clothes, trimmed with a braid and buttons of the same color. But I reached forward to grasp him. He seemed not like the boy, but vapory, or as I can only describe him, like a thin cloud scudding across the room. Still, he seemed to have the boy form. Reports from some of the Boston papers say I fainted. Such is not the case. Such is not the case. I knew where I was and what I was doing, just as I know now I am writing. One day I sent a boy out to hang up the brushes, etc. He was out about five minutes. After he had taken his seat, Three raps came on the door of the room, where the brushes were hung. 
He said, Miss Perkins, can I go out and see who's there? I told him yes. Yes, and leave the schoolroom door open. He did so, and when he opened the brushroom door, I sat where I could see all. Every one of the brushes, both long and short-handled, came falling off the nails where they were hung. Some struck him in the face, some on the shoulders, and the broom directly on top of his head. The dustpan hanging on a nail in some distance above the brushes came tumbling down to the floor with a vengeance. It then stood on its handle, and then on the bottom edge, and continued on so till it entered the schoolroom, and then it was placed as nicely against the partition as if I had done it myself. Just as soon as I'd raised the ventilator, a black ball like a cannonball would begin to roll around the attic and make such a noise I would be obliged to lower the ventilator. One day the room was quiet as it could be, and someone all at once in the attic called out, Dady Pike! Dady thought I spoke and said, Whatum? I said to him, Can you say your lesson? Since the boy affair took place, the attic has been fastened up. Locks and keys are of no use, however, for there is as much walking upstairs and sometimes the hammering and nailing. Once in a while, sounds as if someone walking will come down the attic way. It will go across the entry and open the outside door and be gone perhaps ten minutes. After it is quiet again, the door will open and he, she, or it will go upstairs. I'm not a spiritualist, never attended a sitting, in fact, never had anything to do with a person of that belief, and never saw any manifestations. Why anything of that sort should take place where I am is more than I can account for. Lucy Adelaide Perkins was never reinstated as teacher at the schoolhouse, as I said, She eventually married at the age of 28 on September 18, 1878, to William Hills Safford. But sadly, two years after she married, Lucy Safford died of tuberculosis at the age of 30 on March 15, 1880, just seven years after the ghostly experiences. The little boy who was suspected of causing all these ghostly events was named Amos Currier. However, when the events began, he would only have been seven or younger. It's unlikely that someone of that age could have the ability to create such an array of ghostly noises. Amos went on to marry and raise two sons. One of his sons died in 1909 at the age of four from stomach illness, and Amos lived until 71. The schoolhouse is still standing today, but after its purchase some decades ago, the new owners remodeled it into a home. But some of the original appearance remained the same, such as the outside green blinds. I'll have a picture of the old house as it is today on the website, along with some old illustrations of the schoolhouse and of the ghost and the teacher. So that's the story of the haunted schoolhouse in Massachusetts. I hope you enjoyed it. And with that, we're going to close it up, close up shop, and that's it for episode number... 295 of Anything Ghost. We're quickly approaching that magical 300 number. And if you would like to add your stories to the next episode, a personal ghost story, or maybe a friend or family member has a ghost story, or you have a local ghost legend you think is interesting you'd like to send in, send them to lex at anythingghost.com or fill out the form at anythingghost.com. It's the contact form. And then I'll get it and I'll read it or play it. You can record your stories yourself just to just uh, try to make sure it's a good sounding story. You know, write, maybe write out some notes for yourself or write out the whole story and then record it. All right. Thanks, everybody, this time for your stories. I'll talk to you all in show number 296 of Anything Ghost. Until then, take care.
When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.